The first step is to invite the professor, in this case, the head of the department, into the conversation. We happened to catch them just as they were doing a self-study, just as they were looking at who they are as a department, just as they were imagining who they could be as a department. And that happy, happy coincidence led for them to actually include in their self-study, starting to think of themselves in a global way. everyone. Welcome to this episode of World Strides Inaugural Podcast, Changing Lives Through Education Abroad, a weekly series of conversations with international education's most interesting thought leaders, as well as discussions on emerging trends, best practices, and innovation happening in our field. I'm your host, Zach McKinnis, Senior Director of Campus Partnerships with World Strides, and I'm so excited about today's episode. We'll be talking about the meaning of faculty engagement and how true partnership with faculty can help us to achieve our goal of creating life-changing moments for our students. I'm thrilled to be joined by someone whom I admire deeply as a true leader in our field. Dr. Krista Olson is the Executive Director of Global Engagement at the College of New Jersey. Prior to joining TCNJ in 2017, Krista was Vice Provost of International Programs and Professor at Drake University in Iowa. She holds a PhD in French literature from Stanford University and a bachelor's degree in foreign languages from Washington State University. You do not want to miss this episode. Krista, welcome. Thank you. It's exciting to do this with you. Thank you. I'm so glad you're here. Could you start by describing your current role at TCNJ to us? Sure. As Zach mentioned, I'm the Executive Director for Global Engagement, which in this context, every Every institution is a little bit different in terms of what title means what, but in this context, I serve as a senior international officer. I report into the provost office for those of you who are interested in how structure works at various institutions. And I oversee the Center for Global Engagement, where we work with faculty and staff to have in place institutional partnerships, to work with our program provider partners like World Strides. And study centers, what we call study centers, and faculty-led programs, and then a variety of things that we're doing on campus. This office also, I also oversee what we have in place for international student and scholar support services. So that's a snapshot, and we'll talk more, I'm sure, about some of these pieces. Fantastic. Thank you for that. So, Krista, one thing I think about a lot are the various naming conventions we have in our field for our education abroad units on campus. Mm-hmm. We have Center for International Programs, Office of Study Abroad, Office of Off-Campus Study, you name it. But at TCNJ, you lead the Center for Global Engagement. So a big question to you would be, what does global engagement mean to you? For me, global engagement is more than what we're doing with education abroad or what we're doing with international support services. For me, global engagement is all of the various activities, but also a frame of mind, if you will, and how we're thinking about what we're doing at our institutions to advance global learning, to help develop those outcomes and skill sets and mindsets for our students, as well as our faculty and staff. So we know that faculty are at the heart of learning and that education abroad is a high-impact practice. In your experience, how have you seen faculty engagement be integral to education abroad 
or to the Center of Global Engagement at TCNJ more broadly? You know, the, the most direct way that we do faculty engagement is by inviting professors to propose a short-term program that they teach in another location. I mean, that is the most direct, if you will, because we're inviting them in to actually create their own specific global engagement opportunity that they are seeing from start to finish, if you will. And that was largely what was the, the driver, I would say, upon arrival here at this particular institution. But for me, faculty engagement, of course, is also broader. And the most recent way that I've been trying to expand or broaden the way we're thinking about faculty and the way they're globally engaged is by inviting them into another process of looking at the partners that we have, both institutional and organizational partners, and to think about the range of things that one can do with a partner and propose activities that align with their particular areas of teaching and research or service things they want to be doing, that they're engaged in. So I'm trying to connect the way the professors and other staff are really inspired and motivated to do things with the opportunities that our partners present. So that engagement then is trying to catch them where they are and literally match them up with opportunities that our partners afford to us. The other part of that is um, helping not just the professors, but um, other leaders and other staff who are my peers to think of global engagement as a way of accomplishing other important priorities at our institution. And so if by matching up a professor, for example, with a partner, perhaps at, you know one of our institutional partners, to do some co-teaching or to do some collaborative research allows them then to also achieve you know, one of our institutional goals of more diversity or high impact practices, then that's a win-win for everyone involved. And so you see engagement, the word engagement sprinkled throughout everything I just said. We're engaging faculty to engage partners, to engage students, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it's like almost like, you know, cultivating an entire culture of, of global engagement. That's great. And service to the broader engagement that is so central to our culture and probably to a lot of other cultures that are of institutions similar to us in size and mission, right? Absolutely. And to that, how do you go about engaging faculty in a way that allows their expertise and their experience to shine in a way that supports your unit's mission and goals as well as that of the institutions? Like how do you, how do you leverage the expertise that an individual faculty member brings to brings to the table? When we sent out this request for proposals from our faculty and staff last spring for ideas that they had and how they could globally engage through our partners, one of the responses, one of the that came back, one of the proposals that came back was a proposal from one of our professors in biomedical engineering. He happens to be of Indian origin, and he noticed that we had a partner in India, 
and he had a biomedical project that he had been thinking about and had been in conversation with another partner in India about trying to work on this research in such a way that students could also be part of the research project. So in conversation with him about his proposal on the front end before he submitted it, I invited him or encouraged him to think, well, could we possibly see if our current partner would be a possible place for collaboration? And then we'll also explore the potential new partner you're proposing. But let's, can we, can we connect that up? So it is through an iterative process of dialogue as he was preparing the proposal that we came together with this idea. And now we'll be going forward over the next year in realizing his research, co-teaching, global engagement opportunity to try to set the stage for him then being able to follow up and potentially take a group of students to be feet on the ground, if you will, in working with this both organization and these two institutional partners. What is one example where your collaboration with faculty stakeholders led to a result that you didn't expect? (laughs) A result I didn't expect. I am working right now on something called um, one of those ideas, capacity building grants. I'm sure, Zach, you're familiar with them, that World Learning manages for the Department of State. When we proposed that project to build our capacity in engaging with one of the Indian partners, and I mentioned before, I'm not only engaged in India, it just happens to be on my mind, in part because of this ideas capacity building grant. When we first proposed the project, The idea was we were going to try out three types of global engagement activities with this partner. One of them is the fact we had tried a program, which you and I, which we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. Another was how do we infuse into existing curriculum in the health sciences, public health and nursing and kinesiology in this case, content from our partners about Indian rural public health into their curriculum. And a third was to think about building a longer internship opportunity for students to go to four to eight weeks. So those were the three kinds of global engagements that we wanted to build capacity for to pilot through this project. And so we just sent our first pilot group of faculty-led program in January. And now we're working on the next part as how do we begin infusing content into spring and fall curriculum of of the three professors who were part of this project. What I did not foresee is that the professors who would travel for the J term to get to know the partner and then think about how um, they can do these other activities, that they would come to the conclusion that an internship in the summer just was not going to be a viable option, that they just couldn't imagine the students being there at that time frame. And so that kind of, I'm kind of figuring out now, how do I engage with them in such a way to figure out another time frame, another way to achieve this internship opportunity? And so I'm having to step back a little bit and let the dean, who is my co, kind of we're co-directors here, try her hand at working with her faculty for a while. So, uh you know, sometimes your best efforts at engagement mean stepping back and allowing someone else to engage because 
if you get to, dare I say, your ego and your perception of how things should be too involved, you may sacrifice otherwise achieving your your longer term goals. Does that make sense? So yeah, brilliant. A little lesson learned there. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, it's almost like, you know, once you've built, you know, global engagement up to a certain scale, it becomes out of almost out of your control at the micro level. And so just kind of empowering others on your campus to kind of help help you lead those initiatives. What is the biggest challenge you're facing at work right now? And how are you tackling it? Well, I think a lot of a lot of offices are probably facing something similar. So I'll just go ahead and name it. Many of us experienced attrition during the pandemic for the past, you know, three years. Attrition in staff, attrition in student engagement. I would say on the one hand, on the positive side, we're seeing really, really encouraging faculty engagement and offering faculty-led programs, and we're seeing really encouraging recruitment happening there. The semester programs are coming back more slowly than I anticipated. So we're, you know, we're going to have to revisit that. Yeah, I think this is, that's, this is a really great point. You know, I think um, the, the issue of attrition in our field can be a whole other podcast episode because it's, it's such a challenge that, that many folks that, I, that I'm in conversation with are facing. Mm-hmm. So thank you for sharing that. What is, Krista, a common myth of, of about being an SIO in our field? There may be perception for, uh, of many that SIO spend a bulk of their time traveling around. And I imagine some do travel more than I do. Um, but I um, believe that, that it is a myth. Um, we do not spend the bulk of our time in travel. We spend the bulk of our time in partnering, I believe, on campus um, with various stakeholders and partnering, many in most cases, virtually with our, like we're doing today, right, with our institutional and our organizational partners. So I, I think the myth that SIOs are always off traveling is is not true. To that point, part of you know what we were saying earlier, I think is important that we get our um, our managers. You know, if, if if Jennifer Margarito is one of my assistant directors and she manages what we call our study centers. I think it's important that she actually, she's going to be going to South Africa, as you know, Zach. It's important that she really understands how that study center works, that she's managing. And so she's traveling instead of me. Um, and, I, and I think good leaders make sure that those who report to them have those experiences. So I think that's one of the myths. Yeah, that we're not necessarily just professional professional vacation takers, which is a, a word I once heard from a faculty colleague. Yeah, uh, and then uh, when we are traveling, uh, what other people don't always understand is we're working 12-hour days. So we're doing, we're doing the yes. site visits all day long, and then we're coming back to our hotel rooms, and then we're tra- catching up with all the things that we've missed back in the home office. It's intense. Of course, we do get to do some wonderful, wonderful things. Engaging all day long with our partners is is tremendous. And, and it, um, so that's not to, to be minimized, but it's intense work. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, you make a, a wonderful point about, um, you know, finding opportunities for, for your team to travel and participate in some of these, you know, opportunities overseas. But I also think that, that your unit does a great job about getting other stakeholders on, on campus, including faculty, to participate on site visits and really see the work that, that goes into education abroad programming. 
So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, as well? I think that in, you know, and since the topic for today is faculty engagement, I think that's absolutely critical. So there's there's a couple different ways that I'd like. Let me use a concrete example. So this we just talked about South Africa and. and um, Full disclosure, uh, we are, we collaborate with World Strides on on what we call a study center in South Africa, and the institution Cape Town um, is the institution that provides the academic experiences. But World Strides does an amazing job with all this support surround support services and service learning and other things like that. Unfortunately, we have not been able to send very many students on this amazing experience. So what we've decided to do is we've decided to have try to encourage one of our departments, in this case, Department of African Studies, African American Studies, to adopt this study center as kind of their study center. Um, and so in order to, to arrive, arrive at that goal, if you will, we invited the head of that department to travel alongside of, of, of Jennifer to experience for, firsthand what it would be like for her to actually have students go there to explore together what, in addition to having students go there, what additional things we can work with World Strides to to make possible, possibly for some of the other professors in that department. So it will be a study center in a, in a sense of students will have the opportunities to go there, but perhaps will be some things that faculty can can do in that context as well. So the first step is to invite the professor, in this case, the head of the department, into the conversation. We happen to catch them just as they were doing a self-study, just as they were looking at who they are as a department, just as they were imagining who they could be as a department. And that happy, happy coincidence led for them to actually include in their self-study, starting to think of themselves more in a global way, accepting the invitation to go to South Africa, they're going to have a gala event early March, and they've decided that part of the proceeds of that gala event celebrating their 40 years as a department are going to go towards supporting students who could go to this South Africa Study Center. So even though Piper hasn't even gone yet to visit the study center, she is already engaged herself, obviously, but also her department colleagues in imagining what this location could be for for them as kind of their place they're going to be wanting to send students and raising money to do it. So I this is like, wow, you know, that conversation, that coffee, I had coffee with her at Panera's and we were just talking through this and imagining these things. I, I cannot tell you how much, how, how glad I had that I that I had that hour with her because all these other things are happening because she got engaged and excited about this and her colleagues are excited about this um, and well I have I'm optimistic Zach that two years from now we're gonna see we're gonna see things happening that otherwise would not be happening with that study center. Yeah, I love everything that you're saying. You know, the power of a cup of coffee at, at Panera. I've seen it time and again. <laughs> um, and, and so, you know, what you're talking about now, it, it, it's almost like a shared ownership of, of a part of the education abroad portfolio you have at the College of New Jersey, right? And so we've talked about, you know, ways of engaging faculty and, you know, faculty-led programming. You know, when they travel with a group of students, that's one way to engage faculty. But this is another way to engage faculty. So how do you balance that between, you know, engaging faculty on faculty-led programs and, engaging faculty in a more strategic way 
to feel ownership of a program that you already have on your on your list. You may not be happy to hear this, Zach, but one of the ways <laughs> that I'm balancing this is we actually, in our last RFP for faculty-led programs, we decided to put a cap on the number of faculty-led programs we're going to schedule. And the reason for that is partly to, to address this very question. We, if we're not careful, um, our staff will become a faculty-led program machine, right? I told you earlier, I'm concerned that we're starting to see decline in the semester programming, which, by the way, I know is common for a lot of institutions. But when I arrived here pre-COVID, we still had a good balance between the students going for semesters or even a few for a year and the short programs. You know, we hadn't yet, yet experienced the decline in, in the longer semester programs that a lot of institutions had experienced. So I was like, wow, this is so cool. But now we are. So we need to balance the time and energy that our staff has for also engaging with our departments and thinking about how the semester programs align with their curricular offerings. So part of what Piper's doing when she goes to South Africa, we're talking about that, is she's going to be thinking about how all the curriculum in that center aligns with and or complements the curriculum in their department so that the semester option feels like a real option that the students can do and can stay on track with graduating and don't have to spend more than they would spend, except for that flight to get there, um, than if they stayed here, right? So that's one of the balancing things. We're making sure that we're not having our staff so engaged in the short-term programming that we don't have time to do the other things we need to do to be enabling our students and their departments to see them doing the semester programs. Thank you so much for that. So next is an advice for the future Chris's of the world. In your opinion, what is the most important personality trait or professional strength someone would need to be successful in an SIO role? Yeah, you know, the list, uh, when you look at the Association of International Education Administrators list, you know, they they're, they're, they have some really interesting, um, I guess that's, that's, I think it's a standards document now. And of course, Forum has one too. I encourage people to look at AIEA's list because I think that that, um, while when you look at it, is it can be a little overwhelming because there's so many things on that list. I think it's really important for those who are developing in this field to be aware of what's on there. And to, to also, I will say, to know that you don't have to be great at all of those things, right? This is the aspiration. These are the things that, you know, over time we like to develop. And what we don't, what we're not able to to see in ourselves, we make sure to hire in in those who and or mentor in those around us. Well said. What is the most important lesson you've learned over your career, Krista, as when it comes to faculty engagement or working with faculty? I, I think it's critical, and I've learned it the hard way a few times to be very sensitive to how the institution is affecting the professors with whom you are partnering. Um, because the stressors that the professors are facing can sometimes result in them not being available with you 
in the way that you anticipate that they would be. That makes sense. And if you push them too hard with any particular thing you're trying to partner with them on, you can lose them. Uh, because the even if they're very, very invested in global engagement, we have to be sensitive to all the other pressures that those professors are facing. You know, we talked, one of the first questions you asked me was about professors on the tenure track. Well, that's, you know, that's, you know, we talked about that, but your more, your more senior professors and carpet chairs are, you know, are also facing considerable uh, pressure and there's a lot of burnout right now. And so even your most globally engaged professors, if you push them at the wrong time in, in this climate of burnout, you may lose a really important partner. Well said. So it's almost like taking a holistic view to the needs of a faculty member prior to beginning your work with them and, and throughout the process. And I think also part of that is, is making sure to the best of your ability to have a very open channel communication with your, as many of the deans as you can. Because the deans are going to have insights uh, at, uh, on what's happening with their professors that you may not be privy to. So, um, Again, I cannot stress enough how important it is to have, uh, if you can, really strong partnerships, but at, at a minimum, open channel of communication with as many of the deans as possible. Open communication. Fabulous. What advice would you give someone working on a campus where there isn't a strong history of faculty engagement, uh, but who would like to begin this type of work? How does one get started? You know, this dates back to my time working for the American Council on Education. You know, I was there for about 10 years. And there are some interesting things that people can read from ACE about faculty engagement. So, you know, a shout out to ACE. But what I would say is the first thing is to get a sense of who your professors are on campus. And one of the things that you know, ACE and, and others urge folks to do is you can survey, sometimes response rates on surveys aren't great, but you can survey your, your professors to get a sense of what they're interested in, what kind of backgrounds they have, and what they're teaching. Again, ACE has several examples of the kinds of surveys that, that you can use. But get a sense of who your professors are, what they're interested in, and then try to meet them where they are, right? And then try to provide some opportunities for them to come to see how global engagement, um, education, you know, all the things that we talked about as being part of global engagement, can help them to achieve the things that they're trying to achieve in their in their academic career at the institution. Um, so it's getting to know them, and then creating mechanisms that supports them and being engaged. So again, just, you know, making, making time for that cup of coffee and, and finding out, you know, what, what drives an individual faculty member um, within the context of, of, the, of their unique institution. Right, yeah, well, yes. And, and uh, I did not say that explicitly, but you've heard me refer to that in the course of this 
time we've spent together. You know, it's hard for large institu- folks at large institutions. It's hard to get that FaceTime with everybody. That's why I mentioned those other tools. But you can, alongside of, of a survey, you can do focus groups. There's lots of things you can do. But ultimately, as you said, you know, to the extent that you can get that, that one-on-one engagement one way or another, and the coffee is the one way to do it, that is really helpful. Um, and, but be cautious because you can't promise the moon. You're exploring. You're understanding who they are. You're thinking about what mechanism. As you as you have enough conversations with enough faculty, then you can try to design a mechanism that could work for a variety of people. If you promise too many different things to too many different people um, before you built your infrastructure, off, you're you're going to create a problem for yourself too. So that's the caution. If, if that's a cautionary part of that tale, if you will. Absolutely. Yeah. So just, just two more questions um, for us today. Uh, so this year at World Strides, we are celebrating our 55th anniversary. Cool. Um, by, by collecting the life-changing moments of current and past participants on our programs. So I'd like to ask you about your life-changing moment. I know you, you, you as a as a young woman, spent time in, in I believe, France and in Francophone Africa. Tell us about when you realized that your life was changing when you were overseas. There's so many places we can point to on this trajectory of our global and intercultural journeys. You know, it's like many people. It was after that year. In my case, I was, you know, a foreign language major, so spending a year in France is what we did back then, right? Um, I won't say how long ago. (laughs) I think it was really, (laughs) I knew as I came back from that experience that I somehow wanted to be involved in the field of international education. I had, looking back now, I realized my first mentor was the director of international programs at Washington State University who was also at the time, that's where the secretariat for AIEA was located. So, um, linking back, he had already, just by his personhood, had presented, this is one way you work in this field. But I didn't, back at that time, it wasn't really clear how you got from where I was to there, right? And it was, the epiphany, I think, hit me when I was working, you know, I was working for the University of California's um, Education Abroad Headquarters Office in um, Santa Barbara realizing I needed to go back and finish my graduate studies in order to have the kinds of interesting positions that other people had. That was a, oh, okay. This is who I want to be, and here is at least a pathway for, for being able to do that. But it wasn't, frankly until about 10 years ago that I finally found language to talk about what this journey has been for me. And I call it now my global and intercultural journey. And it wasn't until um, I was thinking about what would be the next phase and what would need to be part of all of this that I came to see that intercultural is at the heart of the work that we're doing. And also intercultural is the really important intersection space between global engagement and diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so I've come now to speak about my calling 
for global and intercultural work, but it took me about 30 years to come to find that language and to realize that this is an ongoing journey. So to the extent that that's helpful for others, that, you know, we continue to navigate that. We continue to figure out who we are and how we can be professionals and how we can facilitate this work and engagement for others. Um, that's what keeps me coming to work when, you know, things can sometimes be frustrating is that, you know, we know that we're, as you said, you know, through our own transformational experiences, we've had this experience, and we know that we can have significant impacts on other people as we do this work. You know, I love what you said about, you know, a life-changing experience being almost a fluid process and, and how the meaning of that experience can change with, with experience, perspective, and time, and distance, and and continuing to provide yourself with space to reflect on those experiences and what they and what they've meant to you. I really like that a lot. Yeah. As we think about education abroad and our work in 2023, what makes you hopeful? There's a lot of things. Um, I am really hopeful in part because of those of you who are um, following behind me. Um, if you will, and, and I don't mean literally following me. I mean those of you who are who are now moving into you know uh, managerial, directorial level positions. I've seen a lot of growth in the field, but I've also seen a lot of of growth in those who are working in the field, if you will. Zach, you know the the kinds of conversations that we're having, and the kinds of um, how you're carrying forward and building upon. Uh, the work that's been done. So one of the things that makes me hopeful is is are, are those of you who are working in the field now and and how we've come a ways in professionalizing the field. Um, and that bodes well, I think, for tackling the considerable challenges that we're facing. There's strength. There's strength in the field. And the other thing that, that makes me hopeful is that I, I, I think more and more institutions and more and more institutional leaders are moving beyond r- rhetoric. You know, it's still there. I mean, and we need the rhetoric. I mean, we need, we need the rhetoric. But more and more institutional leaders are realizing that we have to move beyond the rhetoric. And while it may feel um, like this particular moment is kind of a watershed moment uh, because we're all struggling a bit, we have to realize that those same institutional leaders who we, on the one hand, understand they have to move beyond their rhetoric are also facing a lot of pressures. So I'm hopeful, but I realize I have to be patient at the same time. And I'm not a real patient person. So that balancing of my optimism that we will get there, you know, um, with we're going to have to continue to be patient because it's it's a tough time for those in in and senior level, management senior level um, roles in, in our higher education institutions right now. We need to continue to draw. We need to continue to grow. We need to continue to nurture, you know, the next generation of international educators. But, but I am optimistic that the field will overcome um, the current challenges and that, that some of the creative and innovative things that we were experimenting with over these past three years we will find ways to um, hardwire in to what we're doing going forward. And there's some really, really exciting 
things on the horizon. Thank you so much, Dr. Krista Olson, for, for joining us today. And, and to our listeners, thank you for joining us for Changing Lives Through Education Abroad. I'm your host, Zach McInnes, and make sure to join us next week as we continue to explore topics around international education and exchange. Please subscribe to this podcast and share with your friends and colleagues. Let's create life-changing moments together.